Greetings Grapple fans and welcome to the latest and final match of the week for 2022. The podcast within the Let Me Tell You Something universe in which myself, you Let Me Tell You Something co-host Lorcan Mullen, and your other Let Me Tell You Something co-host Simon Cross, take it in turns picking a match from the wide history of professional wrestling to discuss like we're some sort of book club, but instead of reading for themes and similes, we're looking for blood and... Headlocks. Yeah, and headlocks. But for this episode, we're getting a lot of headlocks, aren't we, Simon? This is your pick, uh, but it's one I think we've both been keen to cover before, both these individuals, but maybe one in particular. We know a lot of his name, but maybe not enough of his actual work. What match are we talking about today? And it's for that reason that I, I chose this match. We are talking about a match taking place on November the 15th, 1986, between Nick Bockwinkle the AWA champion, defending his title against a man we know most famously by another name, Kurt Hennig, obviously WWE's Mr. Perfect. Well, I was going to say, I thought you'd know him even more by Mr. I Hate Rap, Kurt Hennig. <laughs> rap is crap, Kurt Rap, Hennig. rap is crap. <laughs> <laughs> the problem with that was they didn't appreciate they were playing to a mostly crowd of southern rednecks, so... Yeah. Who were the faces in that situation? <laughs> I don't really know what they were thinking. Mm. But that was Kurt Henning as a grizzled older veteran at that point. where Although only probably about 40 years old. Which is funny when you look at all the talent now in their 40s or older than that. They're yeah. still highly thought of. But by the time Kurt Henning was 40, he was really seen as kind of a... Not a busted flush, but certainly a shadow of his former self. And that former self is well on display here. It's funny given the project that we've got lined up straight after this one. The weird It's a fun little bridging gap, I suppose, between what we've just discussed in the previous episode, which was Glow, which is what happens when women with no real wrestling ability whatsoever are put into the ring and just told, go. <laughs> and what's so funny is that that episode that we watched aired, I'm sure it wasn't recorded around that time, so there's probably a long gap in between, but that show aired on the 14th of November, 1986. And a day after that airs, in a different venue, literally four miles away from where that Glow show was filmed, <laughs> you have the other end of the spectrum, where if you want to just talk about the craft of professional wrestling as, not even necessarily as an art form, but just as a skill that you hone through training and you perform it to the utmost of your abilities and you treat it with full seriousness that's what you experience really when you're watching this match between Hennig and Bockwinkle yeah and the other reason that it's funny is because what the key story of this match is is the generational conflict where it is the long running champion Nick Bockwinkle who essentially held the AWA title with a few short interspersed periods of him dropping the title to someone else. For nine years, really. He won it in 1977, I think. And pretty much was the perennial champion right up until 1986. And like Ric Flair, really he was the Ric Flair. And that was one of the funny things I was thinking when we watched this match. And I guess that was my key reference point. And I'm, I sent this text to you after, whilst I was, either after I was watching it or whilst I was watching it. That if the internet discourse that we have today 
<laughs> existed to as wide an, an audience. Like, essentially, if there was a wrestling Twitter in 1985, with all the, with the same people, essentially, but you've transported them to 1985, the, the eternal debate would not be, as we've kind of... It's kind of been a, a thing we've come to during the course of this year, is that you're either a Brett guy or a Sean guy. Yeah. That if that discourse had existed in the 80s, maybe it would have been that you're either a Flair guy or a Bockwinkle guy. Or maybe even you're a Flair guy or you're a Bockwinkle guy or you're a Hogan guy. Mm. Bockwinkle and Flair both work within the same... They sort of... They look quite similar. They've got quite similar size, quite similar build, quite similar styles. So they're kind of fitting that same touring world champion mould that we obviously saw in one of our first match of the weeks in this discussion, Buddy Rogers and Luthez. And weirdly, Flair and Bockwinkle are both a continuation of the Buddy Rogers heelish, you know, blonde-haired, out there, more, you know, uh, with a higher opinion of themselves, following on, again, following from the Gorgeous George model even before then. Mm. But combining it with the technical skills and the touring champion mentality that Luthez essentially created when he was the first real true touring world champion in the late 1940s. Yeah. And Bockwinkle, funnily enough, has a connection to Luthez because he was a second-generation wrestler. His father was a pro wrestler, and he was five years senior to Luthez, and they travelled around together, and Luthez would love to tell the story that he was holding a baby Nick Bockwinkle in his arms once, and he pissed all over him. (laughs) True, true heel work there. <laughs> you enjoyed bringing that up when they'd have the Cauliflower Alley Club, which was like this sort of gathering of older wrestlers and promoters and fans. And for years, Thez was the president and Bockwinkle was the vice president. So I think if you are, and it was funny because I was reading his uh, obituary, and as I was watching, I was thinking Bockwinkle's definitely more along that Bret Hart mold of everything having a logic and a function, but it also not being necessarily showy, but it drawing you in regardless. Bockwinkle doesn't have any flipping over the ropes. He doesn't do a flare flop onto his face when he's getting beaten up. I mean, in fairness, partly maybe that's because when we're watching this match, he's actually recently turned babyface and is essentially working subtle heel in this match against Hennig. Yeah. This isn't the Bockwinkle that had Bobby Heenan in his corner interfering during most of his run with the title and sneaking out of uh, holding onto the belts against more worthy champions such as Vern Gagne and Hulk Hogan. So what were your expectations going in for this match and did Bockwinkle meet them? I don't really know what my expectations were. I'd, I'd heard the name Nick Bockwinkle. I hadn't really seen a lot of Nick Bockwinkle. I know he was he's held in high regard in the wrestling community. So my goal with picking this was to, to sort of see what all the fuss was about. And did you get what the fuss was about? Yeah, I did. I, the point you made uh, when you compared him to Bret Hart just then, you're not really that far off the mark at all. There's something about what he does that draws you in. And if you look at the moves listed on paper in this match, A, there's not that many, and B, the ones that there are, like the holds, that, that they last for a long time. But you cared. And it's it's down to, obviously, the guys in the ring. It's also, I think, down to 
how AWA seemed to be presenting itself. I got the impression from the commentators, the way they like they do for NFL games, name the cameramen uh, and go, oh, we like, we're all a crew here kind of thing. It's the little things where they talk about it, the wrestling in such a sporting way and they present it in such a sporting way. It feels like a contest, like a real contest. That's following the traditions of how Vern Gagne always viewed pro wrestling. He came from the amateur background. I think he was an NCAA finalist in the heavyweight division, at least. Maybe even won it the same thing that Brock Lesnar won, famously. And so he'd always been about the fundamentals of wrestling. And the people that he trained, that you see that come up, he trained Ricky Steamboat, he trained Ric Flair... He trained his son, Greg Garnier, that whatever you can say about Timmy, you can say a lot. He did have the fundamentals and down and he was all, he took wrestling seriously, but his, his blind spots were obvious. He didn't change with the times enough and he glorified himself too much. Like he would always put himself over as the champ right up to his later days. He beat Nick Bockwinkle in his final match, and then Nick Bockwinkle became the champion after he retired because he was just default number one contender. And he said it would have taken too long to organise a tournament for him to win the belts. <laughs> it's a tournament for who would win the that belts. That reeks of uh, rug pulling, that. Yeah. And obviously, most famously, Vern Gagne was seen as the guy that didn't see the true full potential in Hulk Hogan and allowed him to slip through his fingers, which is not entirely fair, uh, having read more into it. But we we can maybe talk about that later on in this, but let's focus as much as we can on the match itself. I think that was a brilliant point that you put up, that if you made a list of all the moves that are done in this match, it would be very limited. Yeah. The first 10 minutes or so of this match are built around Nick Bockwinkle applying and reapplying and holding onto a headlock. And then the next 10 minutes or so of the match are about Kurt Henning applying, reapplying, and holding on to an armbar. And that's the focus of most of that first half of the match. It's a very cagey back and forth. Two men that know the holds, know the moves, and know the escapes. And so they've got to essentially both of them wrestle a perfect game in order to come out with the full victory. Yeah. Uh, they highlight, obviously, uh, Bockwinkle. There's there's one great bit where it's like um, Kurt's got a short body and long legs, whereas Bockwinkle's long-bodied and short legs, and obviously that affects how they're able to like apply holds and escape from holds. They talk about the weight difference, the age difference, like, like MMA commentators would. Yes. Bockwinkle has... The extra weight. He's a little bit bigger than Kurt. Kurt's probably a little bit taller, but Bockwinkle has a bit more weight. So when he runs him into the ropes, he's able to knock him down with a shoulder block. I think it's roughly a 30-pound weight difference. Mm. Well, I mean, that's build. Build. To build. What, what it Sorry. Is. Yeah. Um, but everything is so technically sound, as you say. And, and the commentators, I made a note of it, like the commentator, Lord John Blears, who is a British-American, he emigrated to america after uh, world war ii oh okay so it's a legit accent it's yeah it's a little watered down by living there it's like an example of one of those transatlantic accents that that was how the term used to go right and you can hear eric idol sort of has quite a similar 
a sort of accent now that's between the two places. Mm. Uh, but he was pointing out that like where they're placing the bone of the arm, having it across the ear to cause more, and more... saying that's why all the older wrestlers all have cauliflower ears from years of being. Yeah. But yeah, Bockwinkle just keeps knocking Kurt Henning off his balance and knocking him down to the mat and keeping him down on the mat because he knows that the younger, more athletic Henning could, could like outpace him. But if he can wear him out and exhaust him on the mat and just keep him on the mat, and obviously the longer the match goes, the time limit is what's going to help him. And it is curious as well, how does, Henning, how does Bockwinkle establish in this match that he's working subtle heel? And it's right there from the start in that he... Drop kicks Henning right in the back, right at the start of the handshake. Like Henning turns his back. Yeah. Drop kicks him. Come to the surprise of the commentators, and I think it's because obviously at this point there, it's meant to be this passing of the torch. So I guess the feeling is eventually it's going to be Henning that gets the belt. So let's have him be the one that they're rooting for because he's the one that's going to be the face of the company going forward. But it's also possible that they will go with Henning as the heel champion because actually what starts to happen after this is a slow build towards Hennig turning heel, which he does confirm when he finally wins the belt from Bockwinkle in 1987 in a in a show, I think it was a pay-per-view show called Super Clash. Okay. But yeah, Lord Blears does make some great points, but then he will go into moments that are almost JR-esque in where he's like, he's suddenly talking about time zones. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to explain how time zones work to the different people watching. But he also just reels off this list of all the people that Bockwinkle's face. And it's so funny at a time when WWF wouldn't even acknowledge that there's wrestling outside of the WWF. And even the NWA would only lightly allude to the other side by saying, we wrestle, we don't come out to rock and roll music and wear yeah. fancy face paint or whatever it is they're saying. He's just flat out saying, oh, Nick Bockwinkle's wrestled Hulk Hogan, and he's wrestled Ric Flair, and he's wrestled yeah. Giant Barber and Jumbo Saruta, etc. Which was, Jumbo is actually one of the people that did win the belt off of Nick Bockwinkle. A few years earlier, the relationship between the NWA and All Japan kind of fizzled out. Sort of around the time when being the NWA champion essentially just meant you were working for Jim Crockett promotions. There was no real touring, touring schedule anymore for that champ. But they, as is, was the tradition in Japan at the time, they always loved the idea of getting an American belt run. And, like, Baba played for a couple of runs with the belt, with the NWA titles for, like, a week. Mm-hmm. So that he could keep that legitimacy. And similarly, in the AWA, they paid to have Jumbo Saruta beat Nick Bockwinkle for the belt. And he actually held it for more than a week. He came to Japan and defended it around. And ended up dropping it to Rick Martel, who was, like, okay. who they were building up as a big baby face. But then... Bockwinkle won it off of a no, no Stan Hansen won it off of Rick Martel, and then he was supposed to lose it to Nick Bockwinkle, but instead he refused to show up and sent the belt back after he'd run over it with his van. <laughs> right, okay, and that's the reign that we're now in, where Bockwinkle having uh, won it from the coward Stan Hansen by forfeit, essentially. Right, is, I see. Defending it now as a babyface champion. And he still is playing, like I said, he's playing the subtle heel, but it's the heel in the same way that Bret Hart was in SummerSlam 91, uh, 92, sorry, that Sasha Banks was to Bianca Belair at WrestleMania 37, how Tetsuya Naito was to Kota Ibushi at Wrestle Kingdom 15, or Race Kingdom 14, whichever one it was. 
it's that thing that he's doing everything right. He's not like... But then he does start gradually... It's almost like he's having to go back to his old tricks in order to keep up with Kurt Hennig. Like, there's a moment... It's not even that he's uh, using the ropes for much extra leverage when he's got him in a hold late on in the match, but he is using the rope for a bit of leverage. He's just yeah. pressing against it to hold on. And then when Kurt Hennig gets bloodied later on into the match, he does a great bit where he's, he's just wrestling the clever, correct game. Where he's not even going out on the outside of the ring to engage with Henning, because that could, you know, he could also similarly get busted open on one of the things on the outside. So he just stands by the ring apron, poking his head out from the top. And so he's got the, you know, I have the higher ground. <laughs> it's over, Anakin. Just punches Kurt Henning in the head occasionally to open up the blood even more. And it is funny because it doesn't feel like a bitterly hate filled grudge, but then it eventually becomes a case of, well, Neither of us is going to out-technique the other one, so let's just pound on each other. Yeah. And again, as you say, instead of it now just being headlocks and the like, it's really just punches and forearms for the most part in the late stages. And the uh, what both of them hit a pile driver at one point. Yeah. And that's a huge, huge build-up. Uh, Kurt gets his drop kick back as well at some point. Well, Kurt had a beautiful drop kick, one of the best ever. But yeah, they're just constantly trading body slams, trading control. Bockwinkle will return to the head and then eventually start going after the knee of Kurt Hennig. But Hennig is just all about that arm for the first 30 minutes or so of the match. Yeah, I can't remember when, because at one point Kurt starts limping and you're like, oh no. That's Nick's back in because he he's not fully in command of this like youthful exuberance that Kurt's like showing, that dynamism. He's He's not, he can't quell it. He's tried quelling it. But it's, it's still there. But it's when Kurt starts limping, he's like, ah, that's how I do it. Yeah. And again, it's so funny comparing this to the in a, the Thez Rogers match and also, I suppose, the Inoki Robinson, that it's still following that continuation of trying to make it look as real as possible for the most part. Like, for example, when he throws Kurt Hennig into the ropes, he doesn't wait for Kurt Hennig to reach the middle of the ring to take in all those extra steps. He's there right with him to follow up with a knee to the gut as soon as he's basically bounced off the ropes that takes him down to the mat. It's it's a match that Luthez would approve of, but unfortunately, matches that Luthez approves of are not necessarily what are drawing people into wrestling in 1986 as we witnessed in the previous week's glow show. <laughs> yes, yeah, I mean, people were definitely loving that in their own way. But people are loving this as well. They are, but it also doesn't help the image. There's just four empty seats in the front row for most of the show. You'd think they'd have got the seat fillers out. Exactly, just get some, get, get a jobber to sit in it. Yeah. Like, maybe pull, pull a jumper, It'd be fine. What if the person that walked into those seats was a... A younger, green-shirted... Oh, inf- no. <laughs> what, why? Why you got to be like that? Still has the chin beard. Oh, Christ. <laughs> it is weird to see in this match as well a ref bump, and then nothing really happens during the ref bump. It is odd. You think, is that setting up for something? I don't know if it's just pointing out the, the sign that this is moving up a notch, because it is them fighting on the outside. So the, the technical wrestling has gone away now as we reach the half-hour mark. I, I think it's for, like, a realistic point of view. Like, oh, my God, like, they're, they're so focused on each other. This happened. Yeah. 
And then obviously because it's not like, well, Nick's, Nick's a face, but playing subtle heel, as you say, he would he doesn't have his Bobby Heenan around, as you've mentioned, like he did earlier in his reign to like, you know, gouge the eyes while the rest down or something like that. He's just so focused on defeating Kurt that I don't think they even really noticed the refs hurt. Also, I think this match does such a great job because it's the 60 minutes of selling the exhaustion. I was saying how much I enjoyed that, again, match I already meant, not, the sorry, not that match, but uh, a match I've mentioned in the past that I loved the Kotribushi Jay White Wrestle Kingdom match, where towards the end they are barely on their feet. But that's more overly dramatic, whereas with this one it's just essentially for the next 25 minutes they're both knackered, but that kind of works because you think, well, if you're knackered, then you should be losing at any moment. But it also shows that if, if your opponent is knackered, they might not have everything within them to finish you off either. Yeah, Kurt hits like, his dad's finishing move, the axe, a few times, but he, he can't really do anything with it because it's so deep into the match. Yeah, well, I also wonder, it's funny as well. Well, at that point, he's also bloodied really badly. Yeah. And that really just plays up how little energy... That's kind of the point of bleeding in these kind of matches is to show visibly how much energy's got like literally your life's energy is pouring out of your face. <laughs> your life force is just eking away. But it's funny actually when he does the act and, and also because Larry the Axe Henning was a such a huge star in that territory, that AWA territory for decades. And Larry the Axe was so different from Kurt Hennig. Larry the Axe was this huge, you know, four hundred pound brawling guy. And for his son to instead be this live super athlete guy. It's such an odd move. It's such an odd place to go. But what I also thought was funny as well is like, if that is meant to be his finisher, or at least his dad's finisher, isn't this a 1986 equivalent of finisher spam? Because <laughs> yes, he does hit yes, it, it four <laughs> times in one match. Yeah. Is that what the 1986 online fans would have been complaining? He's killing this move. <laughs> Kurt Henning with the axe is like Al Penta with the, the Canadian Destroyer. <laughs> well, or anyone with the Canadian Destroyer these days. He, he tries his best with it, though, doesn't he? But you're right, it's because... It, and and what, a, what a blade job it is. Oh, yeah. Did you notice that in the, in the crowd, when he's hit the axe on Bockwinkle, yeah. one sort of teenager notices that Bockwinkle's blading. Doesn't he get up out of his seat and point? Well, he elbows to his mate saying, look, and he's miming the blading yeah. motion. So I wonder if that was an early Observer subscriber or <laughs> newsletter subscriber that's learned about these things. <laughs> but yeah, I just love how throughout it all, Henning will always go back to the arm and Bockwinkle will gradually go for the legs as time goes on. Mm. And But then towards the end... Henning returns fire and goes for Bockwinkle's leg. Yeah. And that allows, when he's bleeding, and that allows the final tense-filled moments is him applying the figure four. And Nick just holding on. Yeah, yeah, holding on, holding on as the, as the cut clock's counting down. It's amazing as well. You're getting time updates every five minutes from the first five minutes. Yeah. And then they increase the frequency as well. So it's like, here's your 57-minute warning. <laughs> yeah. But it's working with the crowd. The crowd is well into it, you know, despite the four empty seats in the front <laughs> row. And and it's coming from about the half hour mark. I remember the first moment where the crowd really got more energized was when Bockwinkle applied the sleeper hole to Henning. So then it was like, well, these are believable finishes at this point. Yeah. 
Wasn't AWA Minnesota based? Yeah, essentially AWA was Minnesota based, but it was pretty much the whole of the Midland, the middle part of America. Yeah. It was kind of the Midlands. Because they're in Vegas, aren't they? Yes. Well, that was because they reached a deal with ESPN. This was because wrestling was so huge. ESPN was like, well, we need our slice of this. Ah. And because they didn't have, they couldn't get a deal with NWA, and the WWE already had their deals with like NBC and the like, then they paid the AWA to put their stuff on. That's why you. Uh, at one point in the match, we got um, we got updates on all of the hockey games oh, yes, that were taking yeah. place. Yeah. There was a New York derby, I noticed, going on. <laughs> but yeah, it does have that feel of like Friday night boxing when you look at those boxing shows where the likes of Mike Tyson and, and so on were having their first high-profile pre-pay-per-view boxing matches. It was in that sort of an arena, mm. I suppose. I think if you just look, if you look at wrestling for just pure technical ability, and again, if you like that, there's world of wrestling there's no reason you wouldn't dislike this match but it is 60 minutes and it's asking a lot of some people and the first half hour is you know you have to be someone that's willing to go with that journey yeah and they're, they're applying it all correctly and everything but it's i don't know that someone's wrong if they say they don't enjoy this match and not just like they're a high spots person you know if, if i'd have tried to watch this when i was young maybe i would have been bored as well maybe i would have been because there was a kid in one of those seats at one point. Yeah. He, he went off. <laughs> and I can see, again, when you think what's happening in 1986, you know, the WWF's doing Hulk Hogan against King Kong Bundy, and it's doing variety shows. You've got Mr. T, Cindy Lauper. Roddy Piper. It's the pop cultural phenomenon. And then with the NWA, they've still got the wrestling, but they've got all these wild promo characters and... Ric Flair and the Four Horsemen, you know, Dusty Rhodes and all those sort of figures. Bockwinkle was proficient and he was great. And he also had a great promo style. It's kind of like he had the substance that Ric Flair did. And Ric Flair will hoot and holler and scream and shout. Yeah. But he'll kind of say nothing. Whereas Bockwinkle's whole thing was about learning four, five, six syllable words and dropping them into his promos to piss off the crowd because it was like they don't know what that word means so that pissed them off because <laughs> he thinks he's better than them. so instead of flaunting his wealth which he still does somewhat he was you know <laughs> also showing off his just he's better than these people in multiple different ways yeah and obviously everyone and chris jericho has said that he modeled so much of his you know suit and tie character mm. on a combination of Anton Chigurh in No Country for Old Men and Nick Bockwinkle. That was essentially what he was doing. And Bockwinkle, the NWA would wrestle in Winnipeg. Actually, Bockwinkle's only recorded singles match with Ric Flair was in Winnipeg. Oh, okay. Uh, the legend had gone that Chris Jericho was in the front row, but Jericho has disputed that claim. And if Jericho disputes it, I guess it didn't happen. Yeah, Jericho would. If, if it did happen, Jericho would have mentioned yeah. it. But Bockwinkle was approached a number of points about becoming the NWA world champion. Okay. Because he was admired for his work in the AWA. He was like the model champion in the mold of these touring champs at the time, your Harley races. And it was around the Harley race time. So it was like, would you be interested in taking the belt following in the footsteps of the Jack Briscoes, the Dory Funk juniors, etc. And he could work as, as we can see, he can work face and heel. He can do what he needs to do. And he carries himself like a champion. And you know, the crazy, one of the crazy things about this match is that he's 51 at this point. 51 and 11 months old, I looked it up, and he still looks great. You're sort of describing him 
not as the guy who gets you the money, but the guy who works with the guy who no, gets you the money. No, no, that's not true. He's the guy that gets you the The AW, well, this is, well, let's, let me just first finish that thought. He thought it through and he thought, essentially, with the AWA, if I'm the champion there, I'll probably only have to work about 150 to 180 shows a year because in the summer period, the AWA didn't really do much in those places because it was like the, one of the few times that the weather's quite warm and so they figure people won't necessarily want to go to the wrestling as much anymore. And so, and also, they would usually be an annual falling out with the Crusher, who was their big babyface draw. <laughs> and he'd get into a huff and then conveniently spend his summer months away before coming back when the cold weather starts to come back in and goes, you know what, I'm, all right, let's bygones be bygones and let's go back. And so Bockwinkel thought, I could do, I'm making $150,000 doing this, or I can probably make $300,000 being the NWA champion, but then also be working 300 dates a, a year minimum. Mm. I mean, I've shown you that crazy schedule that Ric Flair took for like the first five months of 1993 would drive you, I mean, your body would go, you know, when you think during all that time, he's mostly wrestling matches of this sort of length. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, Rick did snap once and uh, flew home and then that got talked back round and flew straight back out so he could actually make his date. And Flair was such a huge admirer of Bockwinkle, who was there in the AWA when he was being trained in the 70s, and said that Bockwinkle always gave him advice, and he always had all the time in the world for Bockwinkle, and I think he probably modelled a lot of what he did on Bockwinkle, but just made it more of a his razzle-dazzle showmanship, and more, I don't want to say high-spot focus, but if you look at, like, the equivalent of this match going on in the NWA at this time was his matches with Barry Windham, which we covered for the Melts of Five Star Projects. And we saw the version of that that goes 50 minutes or so. And I think the problem with that was it was a lot of the time was Flair was repeating himself, but like repeating the, the silly spots instead yeah. of like the, the the flops and everything. He could still do it, but there was more of that showmanship and it not necessarily being always as, you know, 100% psychologically pure, which is what always what Bret Hart knocked him for. Whereas... You're getting that with Bockwinkle, but are you having as much fun? It's getting that right balance. You know, as I said, the Brett guys or the Sean guys, you know, or the FTRs and the Young Bucks and so on and so forth to this day. With Bockwinkle, it's all fundamentally sound and everyone should study him. But I can also understand why his time had come and gone at this point. And they knew with Kurt Hennig that it was like, we can't keep holding off. We've got to give him the belt. And they kind of wanted to repeat themselves with that mould. But then... Pretty soon after that, Henning was like, nah, I'm going to WWF. And it's so funny, though, when you look at it. This is like one of the great examples of what, as I was saying, that what Vince McMahon always did is he took wrestlers and turned them into superstars. Mm. So what you've got here is just straight lace, no nonsense, Kurt Hennig in wrestling trunks and wrestling boots, having a perfect wrestling match, no pun intended, <laughs> with Bockwinkle. But he comes to WWF and it's like, well, what hat do we put on you to make you better? Yeah, And it's not just that they give him a gimmick name, but they give him the video vignettes and they simplify it and they make it clear this is what this character is. It's sort of taking the arrogance of Bockwinkle. Maybe if Bockwinkle was 35 when he when this was happening and he gone to the WWF, maybe he would have been made Mr. Perfect. But it's not just that when you look at it. Because what's the other big problem that Kurt Hennig had is that he never had a fantastic body if you just brought it down to pure genetics. When you look at what his dad looked like, then... Yeah. You should be relieved. But then you give him those high up to the chest singlets with the very clear neon color scheme. You dye his hair a brighter color of blondes. 
you give him the music and the videos and the simplified name. His promos are all about how perfect he is. And it takes someone with all that raw wrestling ability and then turns him into a superstar. Yeah. And when people remember Kurt Hennig, you don't remember this stuff. This is the stuff you have to trawl through to find. It's like you don't remember Hacksaw Jim Duggan, the Mid-South Brawler, Mm. unless you do the deep dive into it. You don't know Ted DiBiase, the great in-ring technician that was similarly like Bockwinkle, another guy that they were considering for NWA champion. Yeah. You don't see that. You see the million-dollar man. And that's not having a go at WRF and saying that that's an inferior product. It's take what how does Vince take Kurt Hennig that can do all that stuff but is drawing a fairly indifferent crowd in 1986 and instead build him in such a way that you can have him wrestle Hulk Hogan at Madison Square Garden it sells out yeah. and all the time for the next two years you have him touring the B shows as the Intercontinental Champion before finally dropping the belt to Bret Hart. You can't sell a great headlock alone you need to have something behind it. And that's what Vern Garnier didn't really get in 1986. Yeah. And that's why Glow was probably as big a ratings draw as I I don't have the numbers to hand, but I know that when Nick Bonkwinkle wrestled his last match in 1987, it's listed, or one of his last matches in 1987, it was listed as being in front of a crowd of 175. Oh, hard times, daddy. The AWA got so bad that by their last year, they were literally doing like the studio wrestling of the pandemic era without there being a pandemic. (laughs) That's how bad it got for them towards the end. But I won't go into it now, but maybe in a later date we can do... If we do another Bockwinkle, I would be fascinated to do Bockwinkle working with Hulk Hogan. Because there was no way you're dragging him to a 60-minute match. (laughs) So what does Bockwinkle do with Hogan that's different to what he does with Kurt Henning in this match? Well, there's no dragging involved with Henning, apart from some hair pulls. Yeah. Which is weird. That was always something Henning loved doing. He loved yanking at Brett's hair in their matches as well. Yeah. It's like something out of glow. I think it's one of those moves where everyone understands it. Everyone's had their hair pulled. Well, it's just, I think it's also with those, it's like, they just, like I said, the match is a gradual descent from the most pure of technical wrestling to just, I'm punching you in the face until we're bleeding. <laughs> until you stop coming at me. Yeah, when every time Nick Bonkwickle makes a comeback in the latter half of this match, it's not because he snatches him and brings him down to a headlock, it's that whilst he's on his knees, he's able to catch him with a few fists in the gut and follows it up with an uppercut. Yeah. That floors Hennig long enough for him to get back on his feet and take back control and then try to do hit the big pile driver move. And like I said, when they both hit the big pile drivers, the only thing saving them, and you, you sent me a text saying how often the the foot on the rope is what's breaking up the yeah. pin instead of it being like the one way you can get out of like the murder death kill finisher or something like the only time Okada was able to quote unquote kick out of the one wing danger was just because his leg fell on the top rope it yeah. fell on the rope essentially or MJF escaping a paradigm shift by just draping his finger on the rope and Kevin Owens is obviously famously doing that as well during the walls of Jericho yeah, I mean, I would personally rate this match somewhere around the four and three quarter stars, maybe even five. Uh, I'd have to rewatch it, and obviously, committing to what rewatching a one hour match is a big commitment, especially with <laughs> what we've committed ourselves to next. Yes, but yeah, I just you know, if you love technical wrestling and you've never seen any Nick Bockwinkle and you have a spare hour and you also want to see Kurt Hennig before the Mister Perfect days, then by all means, this is the match to look up and watch. And it's not even interrupted by commercial breaks. I mean, the show had commercial breaks, but it wasn't aired actually in America until I think it was like Christmas or New Year's Eve, nineteen eighty-six. Okay. And so when they went to the commercial breaks, they just went straight back to where the match was, right? As they returned, so literally you don't miss anything in this match. I don't think you get the full hour. Okay. Okay. 
But I think I've kind of covered everything I wanted to in this match. And like I said, next time we do Bockwinkle, then maybe we should do Bockwinkle against Hogan and talk about Hogan in the AWA and what, why, what happened ended up happening. Yeah. But anyway, Simon, if people want to get in touch with you to ask you to give you some more Bockwinkle tips, how can they do so? They can get in touch with me on Twitter, where I'm starting under Simon Cross Free. Free for the thirds of this match, be it headlock, armbar, or brawling. <laughs> My name's Lorcan Munnell. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for the A in A-W-A. N for the N in Nick. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterbox. If you put that gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. LMTYspod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. Now, as we said at the start of this episode, this is the last match of the week for 2022. Actually, I will say preemptively, I know what my pick will be for the next match of the week, so that's something you can look forward to. Because one of the things in Meltzer's obituary of Bockwinkle he points out is that Bockwinkle did have time for the future and one of the events that he remembers going to is that he went to the King of the Indies tournament in late 2001 Oh, and essentially he put a word into the promoter of the APW Roland, uh, Roland something who is in Beyond the Mat and told him that the f- tournament setup that he'd had booked which was for Donovan Morgan to win the semi-final and the tournament because he was the local guy and win the final, to instead book it so that Donovan Morgan lost in the semi-finals to set up the final, which is what we're going to be talking about, which is the final of the King of the Indies 2001 APW tournament between Loki and the man that Nick Bonkwinkle said he would have been honoured to have wrestled if he'd have been around in his time, American Dragon Brian Danielson. So that's something to look forward to. But what we are doing now is we're going to be off for maybe... 12 or 13 days, but that week off you miss of us, oh boy, are we going to make up for it. (laughs) This is a new project. We don't even have a title for the project or a theme at this point. I'll have to think that through. But according to my calculations, the first episode of it should be reaching your podcast devices sometime around the 11th of December. And as I said, we don't have a name for the series yet, but what are we planning to do for the month of December, Simon? We are covering every single singles match between Kazuchika Okada and Hiroshi Tanahashi. Starting off with their match on the 31st of January 2010. It's not actually on the New Japan World app that we can find, but there is a YouTube video of it on the official one of the many official New Japan YouTube channels, so you can search that out. And as I was saying, it's fun because it's the bridging app because this very, very much does have echoes, literally in some of the way that moves are held between Bockwinkle and Hennig and maybe the greatest generational passing of the torch series we've ever had in Tanahashi Okada. Just to reiterate as well, if any five-star matches are given, and Meltzer did miss out on an issue recently, hence this doing this one, because that means that any full gear or any other blooming trios matches... Or anything we... from Survivor Series. Yeah, I doubt that somehow. But basically, any five-star matches now for the rest of 2022 will not get covered until the start of 2023. I mean, knowing Meltzer the way he is, we'll probably be finishing off Wrestle Kingdom sometime in mid-February, maybe. (laughs) Osprey and Omega. I mean, like I said, there there are seven matches coming up on AEW that Meltzer could very easily want to give five stars. 
us to. Oh god, I thought this would be a quiet period, hence us doing this project. <laughs> <laughs> but Tony Khan took one look at our plans and said, "Go fuck yourself." I think that's mostly Tony Khan's booking decisions are based around frustrating us. <laughs> and by us, I mean you and me. But there's nothing left for you and me to say at this point, except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. And my name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. We'll see you in slightly more than one, but have a great week until the next week. <laughs>